Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Hi. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I am your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Thanks for taking the time in your busy day. I'm sure it's been busy to tune in. Thank you. In each show, we look at some aspect of how visuality allows you to embed the intelligence of your operational system into the landscape. I like to say the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems to install the detail of your current level of enterprise excellence, even if you are not quite as excellent as you wish you would be or as you know you will be. And that applies to whether you work in a factory, a hospital, an office, an open pit mine, a military depot. If you work, if there's a workplace, visuality needs to be a part of it. And why do we do it? We do it for the stunning bottom line improvements in safety, cost, quality, productivity, on-time delivery. We do it for the splendid cultural alignment that visuality provides so that you can cultivate a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels. And we also do it so we enjoy ourselves. We enjoy ourselves at work. Oh, wonderful. So welcome, welcome. Let's begin. And remember to send your comments and questions and photos, whatever, to radio at visualworkplace.com or you can use the contact button at our website, visualworkplace.com. Okay, let us hear from you. That would be wonderful. So, The question for today, visual thinkers wanted, is how does an organization become visually transformed? What is the process a company needs to undertake in order to achieve, for example, almost always a 15 to 30% increase in productivity and a totally aligned work culture? How does that begin? What is the foundation? And that's what we're going to do today, we're going to continue our discussion of the eight building blocks of visual thinking. Did a show last week on iDriven. We'll touch upon it in a moment again. But the eight building blocks are this. This is of the thinking paradigm called visual thinking. iDriven, standards, six core questions, information deficits, motion, work, value field, and motion metrics. And while the order is not precise and required, it is structured to put great emphasis on the eye-driven as the beginning piece. This set of eight elements is the starting point. Collectively, they represent a different way of thinking about problems and how to solve them. These building blocks are actually an architecture, an architecture of change or transformation in in some cases. They're a set of concepts and principles which when applied repeatedly, consistently, and effectively, produce an immense change that can be captured in a single phrase, a workplace that speaks. Hmm? Another way of talking about that is creating a workforce of visual thinkers. Because when we learn to think differently, we also do differently. We contribute differently. Visuality is a system of thinking first, then it is a system of doing. It is a system of thinking first, then it is a system of devices. Yep, when we change the way we think, we change the way we do. And that begins with the eight building blocks. They are foundational, formative, or to use a fancy word, they're seminal. The eight building blocks are eight seeds, seminal. And we will revisit those building blocks repeatedly in future shows. You can be sure of it. They are very, very important. Mission critical. And this may surprise you. (laughs) No, maybe not. The idea of having a weekly radio show (laughs) on the visual workplace, these future shows I'm talking about, may surprise you. I mean, what's the big deal anyway? Some neato visual devices, a little visual management, some color coding, visual standard work, Kanban, labels and lines because, well, 5S is pretty visual already. 
maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, you know what? It reminds me of the way people responded way back in the early 1980s when a lot of new thinking about manufacturing started to arrive on our shores from Japan. Many people said, what's the big deal here? What's so different? Other people just dismissed it as weird or not relevant or unimportant or just plain nonsense. But some people looked closer and they said, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. It's that way with visuality. If you haven't if you haven't thought about or actually experienced a visual conversion and thought about converting your company visually and letting that be a lead on your transformation on your journey to operational excellence then you you know you'll say what's how can you have more than two shows on this so <laughs> what's the big deal one show yes but many come on what on earth is that woman going to talk about well <laughs> i did mention on the last show that at the last time I was with Voice America, which was about three years ago, I did I had done five years of shows, about 200, 250 different shows. And that richness, the fact that I was able to do that, that richness, the telling detail, begins with the topic of today's show, The Eight Building Blocks. They are how you cultivate the new mindset, how you name and then pursue the enemy relentlessly and systematically. And once found by gum, we're going to destroy it. Hmm? And what's so interesting is that in visuality, the enemy is invisible, as we'll talk about quite a bit in a little bit. So there's some tricky bits. There's some tricky, I'm sorry. (laughs) Can you fix that, please, Erod? There's some tricky bits. Let's start looking. Let's just do a quick scan again of the first building block from our previous show, I Driven. Remember? Remember the two driving questions? What do I need to know and what do I need to share? What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? And remember, the I answers that question and then turns the answer into a visual device and puts it in the workplace as close to the point of use as possible, so that I can pull it to me when and as I need it. Visuality is a pull system. And I'll also say, I believe I said this last week as well, the need leads. The need for information is what triggers the awareness that the information is missing. And then we replace that missingness with a visual device. But the focus of the I-driven is on the centrality of the I, the individual. Not just those operators or that engineer, but you. Be you supervisor, trainer, operator, nurse, doctor, chairman of the board, CEO, maintenance crew member, purchaser, field rep, doesn't matter. Machinist, forklift driver, doesn't matter. That I is you. The I is any person who works anywhere in the world of work and wants to take the struggle out, even if you're a volunteer. So that I and I-driven, the first building block, is the rock center anchor around which visuality extends and expresses itself. It is, if you will, the sovereign self, the me in me. Hmm? And this is, you know, that I is a core, compu- uh, a core component as well of every KPI and every work culture, and it is core to visuality. Maybe we don't talk about it that way. Maybe you hear people talk about it as respect for the individual. By the way, that's a mistranslation. What Toyota, what the Japanese actually says is respect for humanity. But that comes to us here in the West as respect for the individual. We have a somewhat more narrow view. But there's the I in that. The power in empowerment. That's that I. The power in empowerment. Layer by layer, we will peel back the skin of that logic like an onion over many, many shows. So these eight building blocks are really core. There is much, much more to learn about this paradigm. It is a mighty contribution. 
So let's begin. We're going to scan the remaining building blocks. If you want a lot more detail, then see Chapter 2 of my Visual Thinking book. Get the 2017 edition. It's better. The original came out in 2005. Or look at Chapter 2 in Work That Makes Sense, Operator-Led Visuality. You can get both through our website, visualworkplace.com. So we did building block one, quick scan on iDriven. Now let's do building block two, standards. Remember my definition of a visual workplace? A visual workplace is a self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving work environment where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night because of visual devices. Well, that second part of the definition is what we're going to focus on now. What is supposed to happen? And I ask you that. What is supposed to happen? What exactly does that mean? The answer is what's supposed to happen is your work standards. Standards are supposed to happen. That's what work is about. Bingo, building block two is about that, standards. When I use the term standards in workplace visuality, I'm not referring to the time or accounting standards used in bids or quotes or contracts. Instead, I mean the information that defines exactly what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, the what and the how, when, how many. Hmm? More precisely, For the what and the how, what refers to your technical standards and how refers to your procedural standards. Let me show you what I mean. Your technical standards, well, a technical standard is a specification, a product specification or a process spec, a dimension, a tolerance, a value, the detailed requirement found in engineering worksheets and drawings. These requirements are the precise values you add as you convert material into a product or as you develop and deliver a service, as you create what the customer will buy. Here are some examples of technical standards. And I'm going to manufacturing and a little bit of office and a little bit of, of uh, hospital, I hope. Outer diameter, OD, inner diameter, ID, pressure sensitivity, coil resistance, cut length, heat temperature, gloss level, the exact degree of radiation for a patient's site who's under, uh, who is suffering from cancer, dilution level for Taxotera, a chemotherapy drug, Required response time on a fire claim. So now we're in the insurance business. Required end-of-the-month sales figures. That's a spec. And the time it's due is also another spec. As you see, this building block works across all work settings, hospitals, office, open pit mine, military depot. So once you identify the technical standard, the spec, your next Step is to make that spec visual, turn it into a visual device. And when you do, you visually and literally anchor that spec, that technical standard, into the physical landscape of work as close to the point of use as possible. Pardon me, (laughs) as close to the point of use as possible, of course. It becomes part of the process of work indelibly, and you and others can pull that spec to you when and as you need it, okay? Taping down, for example, here's an example I saw, this great shipping department. It was so simple. It was a correctly completed air bill, and the woman who was working there put it at the left-hand corner of her shipping department desk. I asked her about it. She said, you know, I keep forgetting exactly how to fill this out, So this completed form helps me, and she had covered it with some shipping tape to secure it and preserve it. It was just cleverness. Such a simple thing. Who notices it? And what's the cost-benefit? Well, you know, I said this last week. A visual workplace is populated not by hundreds, but by thousands of visual devices created by a workforce that knows how to think visually. She's a visual thinker, and she creates those visual standards when and as she needs them because she knows how and she knows why. So that's the first type of standard, this specification or technical standard. 
But then there's the second type, and the second type will be familiar to you, although you may not call it what I do, a procedural standard. That's a method or an SOP, a standard operating procedure, a preset sequence of steps that tells you how to do something, how to make something, how to perform a task, and the sequence of steps matters. The order matters. Procedural standards tell you exactly how to achieve your technical standards. Procedural standards create outcomes. The outcome is your technical standard, your spec, okay? So do you need to form a two-inch aluminum ingot into a a 0.5-millimeter thick coil? Well, follow the step-by-step roadmap that is your procedural standard, but make it visual. Hmm? But make it visual. Do you want to insert an IV precisely into a patient's arm? Follow the SOP for that, please. (laughs) If you've ever been on the receiving end of someone who didn't, the please is heartfelt. (laughs) Same with programming that CNC machine in the radial department. Follow the SOP for that. Make it visual. How to rivet a bolt. How to set a feed rate. How to weld a rounded point. How to tighten a four-nut wheel. How to change over the winder machine in less than nine minutes, please. How to verify a chemotherapy regimen. How to close the monthly books. How, 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 how. Once you identify, for example, a problem SOP, a problem procedural standard, one that you can't quite get right, then make it visual. But please verify it first and make sure that it's accurate. So you're making something visual that's going to be easy to pull that's also correct. And when you do, when you make it visual, you anchor the SOP into the physical landscape of work. Hmm? So one of the examples that I I, I saw years and years ago at a plant by uh, a Parker Hannafin plant, fantastic plant, was uh, some terminal endings, electrical harnesses that were hanging and hanging on a very tall rod, probably nine foot, eight, eight, nine feet up. And the whole idea was to make sure that the terminal, these wiring harnesses, the terminal ending didn't hit the floor because they were delicate. When they got banged, they would uh, get damaged. It's such a simple thing. Who even thinks about it? And yet, it created scrap. You have the harness done, it's waiting to be moved, and you're hanging it too low, it hits the hard floor, and that's the end of your work. It'll come out in final test. This is what this particular team, this wasn't a single person in this case, this was the team. How are we going to solve that? And they did something so simple. They simply put, you're supposed to hang it 12 inches from the floor. They put a red tape on all the poles that held harnesses at the 12-inch level wide red tape, and that helped them remember not to let the harnesses hang below that point. They wanted to do the right thing, and that visual standard helped them to remember what the right thing was each and every time. It was embedded. It was part of the pole, and they had made it so. They had put it in place. Okay? That's a nice example. I love that. This was like 1985 I saw that, and I thought, wow. Parker Hannafin, not Parker Hannafin, uh, Packard Electric, I'm sorry, I don't mean Parker Hannafin. Parker Electric was a leader in visuality from the get-go, and they just got better and better, and of course they morphed into Delphi. Some of the best visual plants I've seen in the world uh, were in the Delphi group. Then Autoleave acquired them, and acquired their expertise as well. Autoleave is pretty good on its own. Anyway, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about building block two. Two types of standards, and standards are the bedrock of all operations. And when you combine procedural and technical standards, you have sturdiness in your execution, in your performance. They cause, as they are intended, Reliable, repeatable, cost-effective, high-quality work. The absolute heart of all outcomes and the core of all profit-making. Visuality is its great friend, its creator 
Hmm? Visual standards. They create outputs or they help us create outputs for our customers that our customers want to buy and will buy. And that is exactly what is supposed to happen. So standards are the second building block of visual thinking. This awareness. The third building block is the six core questions. And you'll begin to see how these interface with each other and kind of nest. There's a kind of logic here. When you take a closer look, here's an example of the logic. When you take a closer look at your technical and procedural standards, what is supposed to happen, you'll notice that these standards are made up of a specific set of answers. The answers to one or more of only six questions. That's pretty neat. I call those six questions the six core questions. Where, what, when, who, how many, and how. Answer those six questions and you will have the details of every standard, SOP or value specification standard that exists with one exception. With one exception, they all represent all possible answers to the two driving questions. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? And what do I need to share? The exception is why. Why things happen. Why they don't happen. And that will figure into our future discussions in a pretty powerful way when we get to visual leadership which includes not just CEOs and GMs, but also supervisors and team leads, leadership throughout the whole management structure. So, answer those six questions visually, translate them into visual devices, and you get, you know what you get? The visual where, the visual what, the visual when, the visual who, the visual how many. Do you see how this is working? The visual how. You're capturing the detail of every standard that exists and can exist. The details become visually embedded, available to you and anybody else at a glance as part of the very process of work. Pull it to you. It's all there. The workplace speaks, able at last to tell us where things are, what needs to be done, by when, or for how long in the oven. By whom or by which machine or which tool and what quantity precisely how? (laughs) Want to see an example that will be, you'll, you'll be able to see on this radio show? The visual wear. You know what another name for the visual wear is? 5S. Even a mediocre application of 5S is an attempt to answer that core question, where? It is fundamental to being able to do anything, to be able to answer that question, where? And 5S helps us with this. We're going to say a great deal about 5S, not in this show, but I'm mentioning this now. The real purpose of 5S is to capture the where visually. Really good 5S methodologies will make that strong and clear and map you a pathway for achieving it. Our methodology, which is work that makes sense, operator-led visuality, my yellow book, (laughs) makes the visual wear robust, impactful, impactful, revolutionary, dazzling. It's simply dazzling. I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to contribute that work. And when we talk about it in detail, and we will, we will, we will, I will tell you how that happened with such an interesting story. How work that makes sense happened. So let me see if I can go a little bit further and give you two more examples on the radio (laughs) of what visual answers are to two of the six core questions, the visual how. So imagine pictures, four or five pictures and hands and a product that shows you how to correctly wrap a wiring harness and also shows you through the photographs and a little bit of wording, what's the wrong way? That's a visual standard. That's the visual how. Showing us the right way, the wrong way. It doesn't show us the full procedure and you have that choice with your visual standards. You don't have to show everything. You just have to show the tricky part. 
Somewhere, everything needs to be captured, and oh, please do it with photographs, make it visual. But it's the tricky parts, in this case, that we're looking at, in this particular category visual standard, visual how. And here's an example of visual how much. This I saw at Seton Nameplate many years ago. It was so cool. It was a machine that was spitting out lengths of plastic that were going to be turned into signs of varying sizes. And what the operator had done, we were doing a full rollout of of what became operator-led visuality. What the operator had done was to build a little slanty platform that matched up to the end of uh, the unload where these cut pieces came out. And it had a catch at the end. It had a slant and then it had a, a barrier at the end so it wouldn't fall off. But his clever, and that was good enough for me, but he went further. He drilled holes and, 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 and he took a piece of wood with two pegs in it. He, he drilled two sets of holes and he would put the peg in based on the measurement of the piece that was supposed to be rolling off, the work order, right? So the, the pieces come out and they stack up neat as a pin and all he has to do is pick them up. He doesn't have to gather them, doesn't have to uh, move the edges together. He picks them up and he puts them where they need to go next. Such a simple thing. Cost, benefit, unmeasurable. But it took some struggle out of his work. It was also great cleverness, great cleverness. So one, I, I want to say one more word about the six core questions. People can get pretty excited when they hear about building block three, the six core questions. And some even think that these six core questions represent a methodology and that they can be applied as a methodology and the result will be a workplace that speaks. No, 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 they can't do that. They're, they're not equipped. The six core questions are conceptual. They're a framework of understanding versus a methodology. A methodology is a process. It has steps and the order of those steps matters. Mm-hmm. And in addition, the best methods can also be driven. There's no power mechanism in this in this building block of the six core questions. And none of the building blocks, they don't have any drivers. But conceptually, they're they're more like a principle. It's a principle of thinking. And as we move along together, you'll see how all of this weaves in. And I want you to also know they weave in on every level. Not just operators and machinists, but supervisors, GMs, marketing people. The examples are from manufacturing because they're very vivid there. But here's a way that you can use, for example, the six core questions. A manager will say, or the plant manager will say, hey, listen, April is going, April is going to be the visual wear month. May will be the visual when month. July will be the visual how many month. And let's really focus on opportunities for that. And that often happens when the workforce has already completed a cycle of visual workplace training and application. They already have a base and they want to go back and comb through and get more benefit. So that's a way to use the six core questions. We're going to see the connection now between the six core questions and the fourth building block. They were the third. Here comes the fourth. The fourth is information deficits. And I'm going to try to get through this and the next building block before the end of the show. If I don't make it, I may not. We will definitely have to have another show and we'll make it nice next week. So once we understand the six core questions and their importance, then our task becomes simple. Find the missing answers to those questions, the information deficits, and convert the found answers into visual devices. The fact is, missing answers are the enemy. They are the huge waste that justifies the visual workplace, that requires the visual workplace. Well, it's not exactly a simple task. I mean, you are actually looking for something that is invisible to begin with, right? Missing answers. 
And it's not like they're missing like a wallet or a set of keys or something tangible. The enemy is invisible, missing, cannot be seen. And it's important to understand that when we can't find an answer that we need, we either make stuff up or we do something wrong or we simply stop. And that brings us to, in a moment, the fifth building block, which is motion. So we are triggered into motion by the missing answers. But I'll get to that in detail. So I'm going to hold on. Let's, let's do information deficits first so you get some vivid mind images. Another word for missing answers is deficits of information, the fourth building block of visual thinking. Information deficits and all the befores that you can imagine are examples of that, are examples of what is missing. For example, in, in corners of a pre-visual company, when you ask how many of the six core questions are available, how many of the answers to the six core questions are available, the response will be a loud and irritated or loud and depressed, none. There's no where there, there's no what, there's no when, there's no who, there's no how many, there's no how. This area, this corner of this company is full of missing answers, full of information deficits, and there's a hundred corners like us. This is the nature of our company, says disgruntled plant manager or employee. Dangerous, costly, discouraging. No answers. The after has got to be not just neat and clean. I'm referring to a kind of mediocre 5S. But it has to be safe, reliable, cost-effective. And the only way for it to be that way is to make it highly visual. So what is supposed to happen does happen. I want to kind of guess what you are imagining when I talk about a pre-visual company. I want to return to this point again that I said before. You're probably seeing a manufacturing floor or you're probably, if you're not a manufacturer, saying, how does that apply to offices and agencies? So be aware that information deficits exist as a great negative force in the, ball, in the boardroom as well. In the mind and behavior and desk of the GM and the CEO and the plant manager, and you know that. And a great neg- negative force for planners and marketeers and in HR and in accounting. Missing answers. They are everywhere and they saturate the pre-visual enterprise. Mm-hmm. They're one of the most powerful negative determinants of a work culture that doesn't work. And there's another set of negative behaviors that the absence of vital information at work can trigger. This one's a nasty one. I call it hoarding, hoarders of information. This whole classification of employees called hoarders of information. Information deficits can become so habitual that chasing down answers is an expected part of the workday. In such a company, it's not unusual for people to stockpile, stockpile or withhold information. They're stockpiling it. They become hoarders. Whether that's an actual company position such as an expediter or simply understood that Mr. or Miss So-and-so is the go-to person, the one in the know, information hoarders erode the work culture, the possibility of having a spirited and engaged workforce. They represent an unofficial system that makes the official system work or work better. No decision is final until the informal system validates it. And over time, information kingdoms develop. I suspect that some of you who are listening know exactly what I mean. You may be even one of the hoarders. Who knows? These information kingdoms. Information hoarders in my book are most dangerous when vital information is scarce, wrong, unavailable, irrelevant, incomplete, unreliable, late, or just plain unknowable. 
in that kind of an organization, you know what happens? People tell lies. They can't help it. They make stuff up. They lie to themselves, to each other. And you know what? People turn to the information hoarders to attempt to learn the truth, what's really going on, what's really happening, what's really required, what's really the forecast. And being a single trustee of the truth is simply too much power for any person or group to hold, however well-meaning they are, their intentions may be. I mean, some people collect information because they know it's needed, and when it comes by, boy, they grab it. And their intention is not necessarily to become powerful, but to help. And the rest of us are disempowered because we can't get to the information. You understand the the reason for a visual workplace is that there are information deficits. This is a very, very important building block. Information hoarders are always a sign of trouble in the enterprise, but they are not the trouble itself. The trouble itself is the existence of these information deficits that destroy our fundamental need to feel safe in the workplace. Not just physical safety, but psychologically, psychological safety. We need to feel psychologically safe as well. And when we don't, we don't trust. Mm. Faced with chronic information deficits, we may continue to attempt to create value for our customers, but the attempt will come at a very, very high price and with little promise of success or satisfaction yet. Information deficits are the enemy. They cause us to be very busy all the time and not get much work done. You you get the picture. Not much at all. They're invisible, but they're powerful. And they trigger meetings and more meetings and endless questions. They trigger motion. Motion, our next building block, building block five, the footprint of the enemy. So motion is defined as moving without working. That's not my idea. It's totally the brilliance of Taiichi Ono, who was co-architect with Shigeo Shingo of the Toyota production system. He created that definition, and my understanding, which Shingo told me, he said, Mr. Ono-san created that definition because he saw a man watching a machine go around and around and around. I thought about my college days when I would watch go down to the laundromat and I would just watch either the washer or the dryer just go around and around and around. And it upset uh, Ono-san. He said, oh, no, 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 no. No, more, no moving without working. And he opened this tremendous doorway of understanding I found my own application to this definition, moving without working, when I was in 1996, when I was writing my first book on visuality, visual systems, soon to be back in print, by the way, we're working on it now. Anyway, I was looking for a way to measure or to see the need for a visual workplace. How do we know that a visual workplace is needed? Since we can't see the missing information, and into my mind popped this motion, and I thought, perfect, it moving, people will move and not work in a pre-visual workplace. And there are ways of measuring, which we'll get when we get to the last building block, measuring motion, motion metrics are called. Anyway, let me go on. So motion comes in a thousand familiar and a thousand unfamiliar forms, disguises. But here's a sample of what it sounds like. It'll be familiar to you. Wandering, wondering, searching, guessing, checking, checking again, handling, handling again, waiting, counting, counting again. Sometimes when the motion gets really thick, when there are so many unanswered questions, the only thing you can do is stop. And so stopping is another form of motion. But the most common and dangerous forms of motions are connected with questions. We've said this before. Asking questions, answering questions, interrupting to ask, being interrupted to answer, waiting for answers. 
questions have a peculiar multiplier effect that makes them very dangerous. Here's what happens. Imagine this. It's easy. You see it happen all the time. You go. You don't know something. You go over to someone. You say, oh, excuse me. You're very polite. Excuse me. I don't mean to interrupt. I see you're busy. But could you please tell me, for example, could you tell me when the next mail pickup is? I got this urgent uh, envelope I've got to get over to the other building. Oh, no, I can tell you. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but um, I think I think John knows. Hey, John, excuse me, I know you're busy, but can you tell me, do you know when the next mail pickup is? Oh, no, I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm sure Marianne does. Hey, Marianne, all right, we go through a whole room of people. The whole room becomes contaminated, like with a contagious disease. Motion sickness, you could call it. Motion sickness. <laughs> all of those people are in motion because of that single information deficit. Should I go on? I'll go, I'm going to go on a little bit. Did you know that research has confirmed that it takes you or me or anyone eight to ten minutes to recover from an interruption, any interruption, it doesn't matter how long or ho- how short. When we are interrupted, and I interrupted that lady and then John and then he interrupted Marianne and on and on. It's going to take each of those people eight to ten minutes, not to get back to work, but to get back to the level of focus, concentration, of understanding, of connectedness with the task at hand that they were at before they were interrupted. Hmm? The pre-visual workplace. Wowzer. And that is why... The concept of motion is so powerful. It is our only way to find the information deficits. We see the motion. We see another word you could use is struggle, but it's a little bit hard to be precise about struggle. Motion is the footprint of our enemy, which is invisible. It is the symptom, and it spreads into every corner. It's right there right now every corner of the enterprise and eats away at value. Okay? So that's a I'm going to say a few more things about motion. We spend a lot of time on information deficits, we're spending a lot of time on motion. You might wonder why I don't use muda or waste or non-value added activity and I will tell you, I I will tell you very specifically, I don't use non-value activity, non-value adding activity, I should say, non-value adding activity. Because it causes so much heartache in people. Far too often when fine people hear, and this used to be for me, hear me call their jobs non-value adding, they concluded that they were non-value adding when nothing was further from the truth. When I saw how my words affected people, I swore off non-value adding activity. It becomes relevant when you're doing a diagnosis, but not common and useful enough to be able to use as a way of revealing the need for for visuality or revealing uh, the state of motion. And you might say, well, why don't you use the word waste? Well, you know why? Because motion is a specific waste. And here's something else. Uh, motion is always tied to a specific unanswered core questions or several of them, but you can name what it is you're looking for. And you know what? It's my legs that carry me over to an area or someone else's desk to ask the question, do you know where the next, when the next mail pickup is? It's my legs. It's my mouth. It's my finger tapping on someone's shoulder. It's personalized. I witness it. I experience it. It is me in motion. Waste is far too general a term. I don't really like the word waste anyway. Uh, It was very useful. It is very useful as a generic term, but not, I have not found it useful for um, changing behavior. Conceptually, perhaps, but not for changing behavior. And then there's the term muda which is simply the Japanese word for waste. And 
I, I prefer to use a word that doesn't need a translation when I'm here in the English-speaking world. I'll use Muda when I go to Japan. Okay? So, and one of, and I want to say something else about motion, which we will develop over several shows. One of the main reasons that companies are so challenged to make their 5S work is because 5S, as a process, does not have an internal lever. Visuality does. Motion is the lever. And people become scientists of motion. They investigate. They begin to understand their own day by identifying the motion. It's very powerful, very, very useful. And, you know, before we conclude, I want to make sure that everyone understands what motion is not. Motion is not taking a break. That's not motion. Or having lunch with a friend or chatting, calling home or going to the restroom. Our intention is not to turn people into tireless Robots, the Energizer Bunny, who just keeps going and going, none of those activities are motion. They are simply a way of maintaining our humanity at work, our sense of community and personal comfort. So don't worry, people, about engaging in those. If you blame that for your low productivity or your low productiveness, you're looking at the wrong. You're looking at the wrong part. They are not the enemy. Okay? So, I want to kind of sum things up about the the connection between motion and information deficits, this entanglement of struggle. Motion is, I know I'm beating, I'm beating this horse, and but it may not be dead yet, so. <laughs> but I, I want to make a point, uh, I, got, I got a fishing net that I want to make a point about in a moment, I got to kind of lead up to it. Motion is triggered with answers vital to work are missing, wrong, late, incomplete, unavailable, simply not known. I do not know, I do not share. Information deficits is what, the information is what's missing. And the damage to the bottom line that any missing information represents is cumulative. Lean doesn't address this issue. We'll do a whole show. We'll do a whole show on that too. The difference between lean and visual and what they each contribute. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> Six Sigma absolutely doesn't uh, address this. Company performance KPIs. They do. They they are measuring the result of the motion, the motion level in the environment. Their scraps, their errors, their defects, their rework, their chronic late deliveries, the number of. Uh, the length of the changeover, material handling mistakes, even accidents, they all have a component in it that uh, have to do with the absence of answers. So think of a fishing net. What you're doing in visuality is that you are building a net that captures all the fish, the big ones, the big information deficits, and the tiny little fish that would escape if the holes were too large. You weave this net, and this net is your visual workplace. You are capturing motion. I'm going to speed through. I'm going to speed through the last three building blocks. Let's see if I can. The sixth building block is work. It is your definition of work, and work Here it comes. Work means moving and adding value. No, I'm not going to be able to do it. I better not because I I want to spend time on the value field. I better not go go too fast now. It's okay. It's okay. We did well. I, I hit the points that I wanted to. These building blocks are really important because they become the uh the cornerstone, the architecture of this system of thinking. As I said at the beginning of the show, visuality is a system of thinking first. That's why we talk about visual thinkers wanted. 
And then it is a system of doing. It is not about putting some really cool visual devices in place because once you do that, how do you get more? What happens if they don't, if the devices you put into place and borrowed from somebody, saw in a book, if they don't get the behavior change or a complete behavior change? Visuality and these devices are about changing behavior. How do you make your devices more powerful? You can't do it unless you notice the motion, unless you use the building blocks, unless you think through, what am I seeing here? What what does it mean? What am I not seeing? What does it mean? So I had a great time sharing this with you. I always do. I want to thank you very, very much for tuning in to the second part of the eight building blocks. We'll morph into the rest of the building blocks in the next show, and then we'll pick up one um, glimmer or another and fill out the show with strength. I really love talking with you, and I hope that you are beginning to play with these ideas, try them out, maybe even discuss them with a colleague and ask and answer the question, so what? What does this mean? How does this help me? How can I use it? Why should I care? What is workplace visuality? Are we missing anything by not putting it in place? So please send in your questions, your comments, your photos, your stories. Send in your troubles to radio at visualworkplace.com. Visit us at visualworkplace.com. And please come back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off. I'm very, very happy you joined us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.